Welcome to the Payments Podium podcast hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Payments Podium. I am the payments professor, Kevin Olson. And boy, do we got a great topic to talk to you about today. We got Marianne Miller. She's been on before. She helped us to learn a lot about implementing faster payments, what happens with the fraud and faster payments. And she's come back to talk to us about what goes wrong when you don't get identity right. Well, Mary, welcome back to the show. Oh, Kevin, it's great. I love this topic that we're going to talk about today. So, okay, what goes wrong when you don't get identity right? Where did that come from? How do you how do you come up with a topic like that? <laughs> well, I, the way I come up with a topic like that is what's interesting is um, during the pandemic, um, I um, actually was the head of fraud for a fintech that um, received its banking license during the pandemic. And uh, certainly uh, what happened is we saw, uh, you know, um, you know, in the much needed um, uh, period when you know m- monies were distributed from the pro- you know from the government to um, you know consumers, there was um, certainly um, an active fraud community there. So what I saw was uh, lots of fraud attacks, um, certainly on the identity side, and then of course we know as we all know the public sector saw that as well. So um, you know I really saw um, what goes wrong when you don't get it right and what needs to happen to make sure that it doesn't go wrong. Okay, I I love that right away. And it was, I mean, first of all, the pandemic was crazy for everybody. But when it came to the fraudsters, it was almost like they enjoyed it because fraud just took off. And I saw it too in the government payments. So let's, let's, (laughs) what do we do then to get it right? What do we do? What did you learn that we can help people who are listening to be able to stop that fraud or to, identify that fraud or prepare themselves. Yeah, and what's interesting about it, um, Kevin, and this really got to be a big topic because you know, we're looking at during the pandemic, I mean, the numbers are big, they're in the billions. There's some estimates that, you know, um, there was 200, over 200 billion of um, payments, you know, fraud during the pandemic resulting from unemployment insurance, PPP loans. Uh, so it, it, it's, it certainly was a big number. So what happened was, um, you know, some of the things that we, we realized was some of the systems that we were using that looked at, this is Marianne's name, this is her social security number, this is her date of birth and her address, and, and, and the systems check, did the checkbox to say, yeah, that's correct. Um, it didn't work during the pandemic because actually what you need to actually have in place as well is is Marianne Miller presenting Marianne Miller's information in the flow? You need to answer that question, which is a very, very important question because of the fact that the data breaches and um, the, the data that the, ba- the bad actors are sharing you know, in their very sophisticated uh, chat rooms is already out there. They have Marianne's name, her social, her date of birth and address. They can pass all those regular, what I call, check boxes of, of data, but we really need those kinds of identity proofing signals in the digital world that really demonstrate that Marianne's on the other end of that interaction. Okay, something you just said, a lot of people don't like to hear 
And that is, they already have that information. The fraudsters do. There have just been so many data breaches over the past decade or so that if if you believe your information is not out there, I, my opinion, you're putting your head in the sand and, and just, you know, hoping that it's not. It is. So you're saying that you got to you take for consideration. People have that already. And you got to go a step further. And that step further is that step further that, you know, further identifying you, making sure you are who you say you are. Uh, how do you go about doing that? That's a good question, Kevin. And in a digital world, that becomes, um, you know, challenging. And, you know, really looking at what's interesting is, you know, first identifying who in your organization owns identity. And it's funny because sometimes I ask that question when I go into financial institutions and I see fingers pointing across the table. You know, is it the BSA AML team? Is it the authentication team? You know, is it the fraud team? You know, is it the business? And oftentimes I find that, you know, digital identity proofing um, or, or what I say, you know, even, you know, you know, identity proofing across all the multiple channels that a customer can interact with you um, sometimes doesn't have an owner. It doesn't have a home. So that's the first thing that's really important is make sure who owns the strategy, who owns the, you know, that responsibility. Okay. You just made me go, wow. I don't think I've ever walked into a bank or credit union that said who owns the identity. Uh, and I never thought of that till right now. So number one, Get out there. And if you guys are listening, if you were to be asked that Marianne walks into your bank today or your credit union and ask your team that, how would you answer that? Because if I'm walking into your bank or credit union, I'm going to be asking it here soon. Okay. So step one, who owns the identity? What's next? Well, the next thing is, is to, is to acknowledge the fact that really we're, you know, um, you know, I, what I, what I call, you know, we even, you know, we've got some banks out there right now that have I actually pause digital onboarding because of the fact and challenge and the, the high attack rates on the channels right now. And so because of the fact that maybe they have some gaps in their strategy. So what you really need to do is to really acknowledge the fact that some of the um, old systems, while important to understand that you're doing what's been classically called entity resolution, understanding that Marianne's um, customer information is correct. That's an important step of the you know, onboarding process. But also to say, what signals do I have in the channels that I onboard customers, whether it's mobile or whether it's online, what signals do I have that identify that Marianne's presenting her own data? Those kinds of signals, you know, they can be phone-centric signals, they can be email types of reputation signals. Uh, they can, you know, you can go um, depending on the sophistication of um, the type of product that you're trying to enable online. You can go as far as asking for a driver's license front and back to be scanned and a selfie. You know, if if uh, if it's an important enough, you know, if you're doing a lending process, possibly. But you definitely, uh, it's definitely we're definitely to the point digitally both in public and private sector. This is not just a banking issue. I talk to healthcare companies. I talk to insurance companies. I talk to government agencies. And we're all challenged with this question. Oh, wow. So really, you've got to go not just one level up, but a couple more levels up in verifying of identity. Now, is that just an onboarding? 
Or is that something that I'm going to do, like, say, for every transaction or maybe certain special situation type transactions, like, say, somebody suddenly sending a higher limit than they've ever sent before? So you just asked the, a great question, Kevin. That You're absolutely right. Onboarding is only the first step. So once you know that Marianne did genuinely onboard, onboard, then continually being able to authenticate her across all the channels of your bank is really important. So ensuring that um, that you know you maybe once you you know you've digitally identified Marianne, maybe you bind her device and you recognize her device every time she logs in. Uh, that's an, an important step. Um, maybe you have a token, an identity token within your organization, so that every time Marianne engages in a new channel, she uses that identity token. So that's well, I think where we're going in the future. But certainly, it's really very important that you combine your identity proofing strategy and your authentication strategy, and they work hand in hand. Identity and authentication. And I, I like the talking it to a device, too. I got to say, I just went through the headache of I got a new phone. I went from an iPhone 11 to an iPhone 14, you know, after a lot of nagging from my provider to upgrade. I was like, I'll finally do it. And it was just a pain because every new app that I open that's related even remotely to something with privacy or data, because like you mentioned, it's not just banking, it's healthcare, it's government too. I've got to go through a, a strenuous process, it feels like. But then I need to realize too, on those processes, they're there for a reason. They're there for my protection. How, I mean, do you see that too, to where people on both sides, on the banking side and the customer side, they just feel like this is too much. I don't want to have to deal with this. What What's the solution then? Well, and, and you know, definitely to your point on the, you know, the example that you gave, I think what we need to do is really lean on technology. So there's ways, uh, and, and, and in your exact uh, example, there's ways and there's technology out there that can really show that, you know, this is Kevin's phone number. He's He's continuing to have the same phone number. He just changed his phone. And there's companies out there that can persist that information. Um, um, like for example, the company that I work for is one of those companies that does that. But we also have, uh, there's also um, um, other technologies out there that, that would help the customer experience, but also improve the security. And I think what's really, really important when you're looking at your identity proofing examples and your authentication is to look at those technologies that really um, don't inhibit the cover customer experience, but actually ease it. And, and, and that, that's a really important part of your strategy. I like that. Cause yeah, we, if the customers get too much friction, they're not going to follow through with it. And, and that becomes an that's issue. Right. I can recognize it is for my own good and helps me. I wish I'd known about your company doing this and offering it because it's been, you know, a process. I, I think I'm done now. And I probably shouldn't have said that because the next app I go to open is going to probably want a, another layer of authentication to be in place. Now, something else that's mentioned, okay, you mentioned this is on onboarding and on, on transactions. I guess the next question comes we have all these different payment channels that are out there and being used. Do you put more controls in place for one or the other? Do you treat all payment channels the same? How do you look at them differently or do you look at them the same? Well, that's, that's interesting because every channel matters, certainly. Um, what you offer on those channels matter too. So let's um, look at, do you offer, you know, ask, ask yourself these questions. Do you offer servicing? 
Can a customer change their address in the mobile app? Can a customer update um, or order a new debit card online? Can a customer um, add a new beneficiary to a payment? So all of the uh, your authentication and your identity and your fraud strategy is incumbent upon the kind of products and services that you offer. So each channel um, controls need to be relevant to what you're enabling on that channel. And so uh, that that makes, um, you know, for your, your you know, again, you, you don't want to have a lot of enablement, say, for example, on your um, mobile channel and little controls. You want to make sure that if you're enabling a lot on your mobile channel, that you're, that's where your control stack sits as well. I do like the concept also, um, and we talked about a little bit this on another podcast uh, around faster payments is, you know, cross-channel strategy. So, you know, really having your models look across all the channels that your customer interacts with around every payment type. So, you know, have your models look at, you know, you know, uh, uh, payments being initiated on your mobile channel, on your online channel, on your maybe on your phone channel, you know, any, any way that they can interact with you. This podcast is brought to you by the VSoft Corporation. VSoft offers core processing, digital banking, and payment processing solutions for financial institutions of all sizes. Follow us on Twitter at VSoft underscore corp and online at VSoftCorp.com. Okay, back to the show. Okay, I love that you just mentioned cross-channel because that is something that it gets overlooked sometimes. And yes, we do have faster payments now with RTP. We've got FedNow live in 2023. And do you believe that those capabilities are something that fraudsters would look at? They would exploit as far as what they can do as far as control in the apps and what they can do as far as multiple payment channels to be able to skip from one channel to another. That's right. They will. And they'll get multiple. They'll get multiple bad actors to attack on different channels at the same time on the same account. So you really want to make sure that when you're really looking at your foundational strategy, that you're really looking at it evenly across all channels that, that you're enabling your, your payment types, especially faster payment types. Okay. And let me clarify, too, because you said having more control and less capabilities on mobile. But it doesn't mean not having them. It just means like, for example, if you are going to, say, allow somebody to order a debit card online, you just have additional controls. You have additional levels of security in place for certain capabilities, but not necessarily eliminating them. That's 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 right. And in fact, mobile is one of the best channels that you can enable because um, the kind of signals and the kind of information that you can get during a mobile session are very valuable. And and um, in, in my estimation, it's probably a good channel to start with if you do want to do um, further business enablement. But that's right. Additional additional signals, additional layers, additional models. You know, that that's all very important. OK, that that's a lot. This is awesome stuff. I guess the next question comes down to to the how do I do this? Uh, again, a lot of you know institutions in the U.S. are smaller institutions. A lot of them have small staffs, or they have people that wear multiple hats. How do they do this? Uh, if they're trying to do it on their own, I think they're in trouble. But do they partner with people? What what type of information do they ask from the people that they partner for? If they're looking for a new partner, what should they be looking for that will aid them in making sure that they're able to build a strong strategy in that partnership? Yes. Yeah, so, so even though, you know, when I say sometimes small but mighty, 
sometimes, you know, you'll have a smaller bank or financial institution that actually has a, a pretty good technology team. And some of these uh, solutions are API based and they might not be uh, as difficult to implement as, as what you think, some of these signals. And some of small institutions can actually um, really engage and get these APIs up running very quickly. Now, there's other ways too. They can go to their processors and say to them, here's the problem I'm trying to solve. Do you have these types of signals available for me? You know, and if not, when will you have them available? I certainly would ask that question. And then sometimes there's actually platforms that create an orchestration environment um, and they allow for uh, multiple types of solutions to be on a single platform that, that smaller banks can, can actually connect to that is, is easy to access an already integrated set of identity and authentication services. So that's another avenue for smaller institutions. Okay, that, that's that's really a lot. I, I'm loving all of this. I mean, you've given us a lot of things to go on. Who in your organization owns the identity? Every channel matters and small but mighty. There are ways to be able to do this. What, what would be though the number one piece of advice you would tell to all the listeners that when it comes to looking at and identifying what you need to do when it comes to identifying what goes wrong when you don't get identity right. What would be the number one, let's say, homework assignment if you were to be the professor, which you are right now because I'm getting an education, you would tell to all of our listeners, here's your homework assignment. Here's the number one thing you should go do and consider. I think the number one homework assignment is to first acknowledge within your financial institution the challenges you may have around identity. And let me give you an example. So in the U.S., for example, if a bad actor opens up a line of credit uh, under my name, I can certainly see that inquiry at the Quick Credit Bureau, and I can see that trade line opened up at the Credit Bureau, and then I can certainly um, call the Credit Bureau or call that financial institution and report identity theft. That's certainly something that's very easy to do, or, you know, I wouldn't say easy, but <laughs> it's feasible. But if that, if that same scenario happens and they're opening up a core bank account, a DDA account, a checking account, uh, there's not a concept in the U.S. of a deposit bureau. So there's nowhere for a consumer to go to say, Did, was Marianne Miller's identity used to open up a DDA account? And did, was that DDA account used for money laundering? Was it used for check fraud? Was it used for ACH fraud and shut down? Now, sometimes um, the bad actors get a little bit, um, you know, sloppy and, you know, a consumer might receive a debit card from an unknown financial institution in the mail and the consumer might reach out and that, that account gets closed. But often that's not the case. So it's very much, you know, don't underestimate some of the accounts that may be even on your portfolio today that could be synthetic accounts, it could be identity theft accounts that are trying to behave like normal accounts, but later, um, you know, conduct types of fraud that causes your financial institution loss. So are you basically saying people should just treat every account the same as in there is a potential that it's a synthetic identity? and do regular checks or on the accounts and verifications on them to make sure they are who they say they are? That's right. If you start to see normal behavior, like you see 
um, start to see direct deposit, you start to see the, the, the customer pay their utility bills, then you'll start to, it'll start to normalize and you'll know that that, that is Marianne Miller on the other end of that account. But if you don't, if you just start to see cash moving in and out, you, you start to see maybe attempted bad check deposits, um, you start to see multiple ACH pools, then you'll start to understand that um, this is um, uh, a bad actor trying to squeeze your financial institution. Oh, wow. All right. You know, another, you, you've given some really great nuggets of information in here. And one of my favorites was saying, you know, we've got the credit bureau for lines of credit, but we've got no deposit account bureau out there for deposit accounts being created, making sure they are who they say they are. Maybe that's something that we need to get in the future. All right. Well, well as we wrap things up here today, one of the things I really like to ask everybody who's on the payments podium is when you look at yourself and what you've done with your career, which is amazing stuff. I mean, being able to be involved in electronic payments, getting started at faster payments in the UK, being involved now in what you're doing and stopping fraud for your entire career. What advice would you give to somebody who's just now starting in the payments industry? Like if you could go back and talk to yourself when you got that first job with, was it Falcon and getting started, what advice would you give yourself or what advice would you give to somebody who's just now starting a career in electronic payments that would help them and benefit them? Well, I would say that it's an exciting career. Little did I know that this career would take me global. Little did I know that this career would introduce me to machine learning and, and algorithms, and little did I know that the uh, global network that it would, you know, um, I would be connected to. Um, and, and what's interesting about, you know, learning about identity and fraud and authentication, you learn about all of the payment channels. You learn about how banking works. You learn about how risk management works. You learn about how cyber management work. So it's a very, very exciting career. And, uh, you know, I would say that anyone going into it, don't, don't, you know, don't lose your curiosity about everything that's around you. I think curiosity and a growth mindset is a really good thing to have in this career. And I, I, um, I certainly, you know, uh, you know, I'm so curious about every, everything and everyone that's in our, our field. And uh, I think that really is helpful. All right. I love it because you do learn a lot and it is exciting. It, granted, I think the fraud piece can be the most exciting and it, it's not good exciting when you've lost a lot of money, but it is exciting overall. And I agree with you. Don't lose your curiosity. Keep that growth mindset. Marianne, thank you so much for being on the payments podium. You have definitely given us a class on what we need to be able to know to make sure that, well, we know what to do when something goes wrong when you don't get identity right. I am the payments professor, Kevin Olson. And if you guys out there listening want to get a hold of Marianne, Marianne Miller, she's on LinkedIn, or you can email me. I'll get you in contact with her. It's kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. If there is a topic or maybe a speaker you would like to hear on the payments podium, you can also email me again, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. We will do our best to get that speaker or that topic to make sure that we are addressing the questions and needs in your payments education. But for now, I got to say, class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson. See you on Thursday.